Clay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate this. And um, it's a pleasure. I uh, would love to, you know, maybe start out with like maybe who you are and what do you do? Um, I'm Clay Barber. I'm the executive editor of Special Products for Virginia Media, which is basically just a big title for editor of magazines over there. Um, so I'm the editor for Distinction, which is our biggest um, product. And then we have Williamsburg Magazine, which we just took over, and Outer Banks Magazine, Virginia Growler, which is our craft beer publication. And um, I'm forgetting, oh, we do military newspapers and a couple of other things. I'm forgetting something that we've just taken over, Coast, which is like the Outer Banks tab. So we have um, a small team that handles a lot of stuff. Basically, anything that Virginia Media does that's not newspaper is in my department. But, but my biggest job is distinction editor. That's the thing that eats up probably about 55% of my time. Understood. So what were you like kind of as a kid, kind of going into college? Like, what, what were you into? Were you, were you always into this, or did you no. career switch? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I was a really bad student in high school. Hmm. Um, I think I graduated with something like a 1.7 GPA. So I barely, like, you know, just barely got out of there. Um, I was in a rock band, and I was really more interested in that than anything else. Um, and then when I graduated, um, I didn't have really any prospects, so I joined the Navy. I wasn't going to go to college. There was no way I could get to college. So I knew I had to do something, you know. I wasn't going to just go back and work at Bojangles or something, you know. Um, so I joined the Navy and became an operations specialist, which is sort of outside of the, my normal realm of what you would think I would want to do. It's more math and physics and stuff of that nature. Um, and, but I did that for you know, four years, and um, it taught me that I didn't want to be in the service anymore. I didn't, it wasn't for me. Being in a, a position where you can't question authority, mm. uh, chafed. I chafed in that scenario. So when I got out... Um, I knew I needed to go. I needed to go to school. I needed to get a degree. I needed to get an education and really take it seriously. So I came out went to community college um, for a year and a half and got the college transfer credits that I needed and actually basically learned like my last year of high school that I should have, you know, learned things along the way. And um, the intention was to be a history teacher. Were you studying history? Well. Um, in community college, you know, you're just doing all the stuff you should have done in um, high school and doing your the first year of college stuff, you know, all the general um, things. But I was the, the thought was that I was going to go and be a history teacher. Um, but a weird, it was at, at community college, I took a cinema class, um, which was basically history of cinema, and you wrote about movies. And <clears throat> history is a very writing-intensive discipline. That's all you do um, is read and then theorize and then try to support your argument you know so it's basically like journalism in a lot of ways um uh, i see and so I see where we're going now yeah so <laughs> i you know i was I, in that class i was a really poor writer um i mean when the teacher would hand it back to me it was covered in blood you know it was just red ink everywhere but um the teacher i had this one particular teacher who um said something like um and I mean, it, this, keep in mind, this isn't a, a, a paper that I turned in that was covered in red ink because it was full of just horrible grammar and you name it. And the teacher said something like, um, I can sense brilliance in your writing. Hmm. You need to work at it. And 
just that one little thing where it was like, wait, I, I might be good at this. Is that I, that was never in the am I you know in the realm of possibility, um, and so that made me really start thinking about writing, and and so I really buckled down in you know in the in my English classes and stuff, and really 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 tried to learn the rules and the mechanics of how you're supposed to do it, and then I went to App State, Appalachian State in North Carolina, and. Um, to be a history teacher and about midway through my junior year, I just, I was working at the school newspaper for credit because you could like go work for the school newspaper or turn your stuff in. I was taking writing classes and, um, I just sort of like, it just took, you know, one day I was just sitting there. I was like, why am I trying to be a history teacher? I'd rather do journalism for a career. And so I changed. I didn't change my major. I just finished out and got my Bachelor of Science in History degree, but I didn't go and do the teaching aspect of it. I understand. And, you know, started looking for jobs in journalism when I was behind the eight ball. I was behind, you know, because most people have already gone and done internships in college, and so mm. they'll come out of college and go straight to, um, you know, a decent-sized newspaper, is it? Because they, they've already built relationships. I didn't have any of that, so I had to start at a really small newspaper and work my way up. And so what were you doing to work your way up? Were you immediately tasked with writing stories or uh, were you in a sales role? Like, how did you... How no, did you no, start? no, you go. It's, it's Those worlds are split apart, you know. Um, and then they rejoin when you, become, when you become executive editor of a magazine or editor-in-chief of a magazine. Same title. People call it different. Companies call it different things, but it's the same thing. It'll join back together because you have to start worrying about is that ad done correctly will it damage the way the, but you have to live in two worlds at that point but prior to that in newspaper world you don't live in, in sales at all you there's a wall between it you, all you do is focus on the journalism you and you'll bristle if, if the advertising world tries to, to, to encroach on what you're doing I, I started at this really small uh, six day a week newspaper in um, Newton North Carolina I think it was maybe 5,000 circulation um, and I started, I was just, a, I was, you know, when you're at a paper that small, there's, there's no specificity. You are a reporter. That's what you do. And you write about everything. And, um, so I, I spent a year and a half there working really hard, writing stories. And I was a lot better coming out of college than probably some of the ones that would have gone straight to better newspapers because I just didn't have the connections. But, but going to that small newspaper and writing about everything for a year and a half and just, just cranking out story after story and also having um, basically no one to tell me no. Hmm. Like if you go, if I had gone to say the Charlotte Observer or a, you know, a bigger newspaper straight out of college, they would have put me on the most menial stories, right? And they would have, they would have only allowed me to do those stories. I would have had to fight and fight and fight to get bigger and bigger and more interesting stories. Going to a really small newspaper like that, they were just like, whatever, just give us copies. So I could, there was nobody to tell me no on my ideas for stories. So I was able to, you know, come up with crazy big story ideas that were way bigger than I was really ready to do. <laughs> so essentially by being at kind of a smaller organization, you were able to have more autonomy and you could kind of, what I like to say, punch above your weight. You were yeah, able to just absolutely. dive in and, and do... And fail. I mean, fail miserably, but there was nobody to stop you from failing. Um, and that's the key 
to growing as an artist or growing as um, a professional is failing, learning from that failure, coming back until you finally succeed at it. Um, so I was able to really like stretch for stories that I probably wouldn't, it would take me five or six years in another newspaper, you know, to, to get my hands on. And, um, and I, you know, I was at, like, I, I did a story um, on this guy who hiked the Appalachian Trail and um, I was able, I, I wrote it basically like creative nonfiction. And I'm sure if I went back and looked at it today, it would be really, the writing wouldn't be great. But the ability to, to give myself that freedom, you know, informed the next step and the next step in a way that um, by the time I, a year and a half into that job, I went from there to Wilmington, which was a, a, a bigger paper. It was a much bigger paper than that. And it was daily and it was kind of legit journalism. Um, I was able to write these stories that were way better than the people who had, you know, gone, you know, to those internships, to the bigger things. Because I was all of a sudden, I had been writing these crazy stories. And so I'd come in with crazy ideas and, and they'd go, uh, can you give us that? Be, hey, yeah, sure, you know. Um, so I did, I worked, you know, basically that was the way it went. I worked up from there. I went from Wilmington to um, Myrtle Beach. Um, I've worked at 10 different news organizations. Ten. So I've been around. So I went from there to Charlotte. I mean, not Charlotte, Charleston. Which I worked, I worked there for five years. Loved it. Loved Charleston. Um, it's one of my favorite places in the world. Um, basically, I worked three three years in Charleston, two years in Columbia for the Charleston newspaper, which is a great, great small newspaper. Um, learned a lot of things. Uh, you know, wrote a lot of uh, really good stories that I'm proud of, and then was able to uh, use those to go to the St. Louis Post Dispatch, which is you know four hundred thousand circulation newspaper. It was very big and a uh, more of a metropolitan area, and um, what was that like? It was it was a hoot, man. Uh, uh, Missouri is a is a different animal altogether. Um, it's sort of it's kind of like a hybrid between the Midwest and the South. It's um, it's I, I've lived in Wisconsin as well. Worked in Wisconsin. Wisconsin's the Midwest. I mean, there's no getting around it. Um, and Arkansas, Tennessee, that's the South. Missouri is is a hybrid of both. So you get a lot of weirdness there, but you get a lot of cool stuff too, you know? Um, and it's a cool town, old town. Uh, you can live in great, it's very affordable and it has, you know, the, the Cardinals and the blues. And so you, helps. <laughs> your, your dance card's full. You have a lot of cool stuff to go do. And, and the, the job, the job I got there was, was a great job. Um, I was able to write about a lot of stuff, had great bosses who were super smart and, you know, could help me hone um, my skills and, and um, teach me a lot of things. Um, so it was, it was, I, lo I loved St. Louis. Um, and it was, you know, it was where I started editing. That's the, mm -hmm. the that's where they, they saw, um, I guess, my ability to improve stories and put me in a position to start doing that. And so after you leave St. Louis, where did you go from there? Um, I went from St. Louis to Charlotte because I wanted to move back home to North Carolina. Um, so I went to Charlotte. It was right when the world was falling apart in 2009, early 2009, when the economy was hitting. You remember, you know, it was oh, when, yeah. when the economy almost um, went into, like, you know, 1930s level recession. Um, 
and uh, what was so what was it like covering at that time like when you're writing was, the stories? Well, so I I went to Charlotte right before Obama was elected, and it was an amazing. I mean, I I was covering politics for him, um, and it was amazing. It was I mean that was you know to cover that story um, was incredible, and I remember you know being in this uh, kind of basement bar off of, on the south end of town. Um, as it was announced, I, I think it was, I think it was Virginia. My memory is that Virginia came in and was surprisingly for Obama. They didn't expect it to be for Obama. And when Virginia came in for Obama, they were like, it's a done deal. He's winning. And I just remember how like, that's, you know, the most amazing thing in the world. Um, but then, uh, soon afterward when the economy was just, I had just bought a house. It was the first, you know, I finally decided to buy a house at the exact worst time to buy a house. <laughs> and, uh, and then a year and four months after that, um, and some five rounds of layoffs at the newspaper, I got laid off. Mm. So This is in Charlotte. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I was on unemployment for five, four months, four months. Well, I was actually on only, I had a, they give you a you know, severance package. So I was actually only, I was unemployed for five months. I was on, on unemployment for, I think, maybe a month. Um, fortunately, after five months, I found a job with the Census Bureau. It was a temporary, like, one-year post doing PR for them because I needed, you know, got to pay the bills. Got to pay the bills. But the whole time I was doing that, I was constantly looking for the next journalism job that I could get into. And so um, about nine months into that gig, I got uh, a job in Wisconsin in Madison. Went back up there, uh, um, covering politics for them, which was right at the explosion of the 2010 um, uh, uh, Governor Scott Walker and the the, the union. You remember the, uh, he he pa- he passed this bill that was going to, or he was trying to pass it at the time. He eventually passed it. It was going to take away the the rights to unionize uh, for state and federal workers, and that that um, in the state mm-hmm. and it led to all of those people marching up on the state house and um, occupying the state house and that was the, the very beginning of all that occupy occupy wall street uh, and all yes. that stuff was going yes. on right then um, it was crazy and it just has good timing i was right in the middle of it um, my writing partner I, I covered the state house with mary spacuza um, and we you know when you're in that kind of Scenario. There's a lot of like we had a lot of dual bylines because you're you're running all over the place and she's interviewing all of these people over here and you're and then it's really just one big story kind mm-hmm. of deal. Um, so we did a lot of that. It was fun. Um, uh, we were Pulitzer finalists, which was was um, fun um, and you know it was an honor. We lost out to um, I think it was a very small paper I think in Alabama um, that they it was like. It was one of these really, really small papers, but they had this, the entire city had been leveled by tornadoes, and they still managed to get the paper out and do a really good job. I see. And so they were the they got the, the Pulitzer that year, and it was hard to argue with that. You just sort of <laughs> had to take it. Talk yeah. about that for a moment. What does it take to get the Pulitzer recognition? Like maybe just for the listeners that don't know. Um. Well, I haven't received it yet since we were just finalists, but it was an honor. Or basically, to be a finalist, you, if you're a finalist, you're like in the top three in the country in that category that year, you know, in their opinion. Um, I have a, that's probably the only uh, award that I really care about. Um, most awards are so, so arbitrary. 
um, after you after a while you learn to just ignore them because they they don't you know I've seen people win best you know there's a lot of state awards like VPAs the Virginia Press Association um, you'll see people win like you know best beat coverage and you're and you know they're horrible today <laughs> um, and you'll know the person who was really good at it got no love and you know that um, I mean like especially if you like work in a town where there's multiple news outlets um, like I've been in state houses so you have different newspapers with state you know uh, politics reporters and I would watch and like you know this one over here would win the award for beat reporting and I knew that this one that that person all they did was basically follow around behind this reporter over here who broke all the news and then breaking the news is harder like the second day story is always a little sexier it's always a little bigger mm-hmm. there's more detail you know what I mean but if you break the story, a lot of times you're moving on to the next story and the other person's coming behind you and just trying to get a little piece of that ah, action. I see how that works. So, so that person can end up being like, well, this person writes great stories. And you know, you know what I mean? So yep. you start to learn that that stuff can be very arbitrary and it depends on who's judging it. The Pulitzers, you know, there's a group of people and they, they're esteemed and they, and they take it very seriously. And even at that, you have to take it with a grain of salt because there's politics at play. and. But um, that's the one that, I mean, that's the, the one that I think that still matters a lot. But. So how did you land at Distinction? Um, I, came, I came to Virginia to be the urban team. Um, what was the title? It was Enterprise Reporter for the Urban Team at the time. And a much bigger newsroom then. And um, this was in 2012. And, um, I, I, you know, long story, but I wasn't terribly happy with my bosses in Wisconsin. And I just was, my, I had family down here. Uh, my brother passed away. Sorry so, um, it was, uh, one of those situations where you just start thinking like, I'm, I live way too far from my family to be able to get there when something's needed. I mean, you know, Wisconsin was, you know, a f- 13, 14 hour drive to get there. So it wasn't terribly feasible um so i moved back here took this job um because at the time uh you know the pilot was was beautiful newspaper very well it was one of the best designed newspapers in the country um and really really um just at the time i mean it was banging when when i first got here it had like um it had a a very diverse and intelligent edit um edit team you know the editorial team um, I just remember sitting in there and it was just like 14 people around a table. And I mean, you know, you had uh, women, a good mixture of races and, and sexes and opinions. It was an exciting thing. And so uh, when I got here, I was here for maybe four months and they asked me if I would take the position of um, assistant urban team editor. Um, and at the time, Catrice Hardy, who's now a bigwig with Gannett, um, like she's she's like the the executive editor um, for uh, the entire region, Southeast region for Gannett. Um, She was my boss and it was just a great time. It was an honor to work with them. And um, so I started editing for this paper that way and moved up through different positions over the course of a few years till I was assistant features editor. And, um, And my career has been split pretty evenly between politics and feature writing and and they kind of merge 
at times because the best political stories, you know, you, you need a little little um, storytelling in it or, or it'll be dry, right? I mean, so um, I started doing the, the um, assistant feature editing and then the position for distinction came open and that just seemed like to me, I, I, at the time I had been writing for it um, and I was, it just seemed like it would be the coolest gig in town, you know, to be able to, to, to and, I, and I felt like there was some things it wasn't doing right also. That's kind of my personality is I'm kind of a builder, so I look at things and I'm always like, ah, oh, this could be done better. And so while I thought it was beautiful and it was done well, I, 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 there were a number of things I felt like if I could get my hands on it, I would change and I would do differently. And um, just fortunately, the editor, who was a very good editor, um, took a job um, elsewhere, position came open, um, and I, I dove at it. And, um, and then from there, it's just grown. They've added and added to the department. So, What type of decisions do you have like under your span of control? Because I think as a reader of Distinction looking at... Uh, it, I see like an eye, like I see like a very like curated sort of just very thoughtful, like all the stories, like how they play off of each other just seems like it's really, you know, just well done. So just like, what do you do? How's your team kind of structure? You know, how, how's yeah. that? Like well, it's a small team. Um, I have four designers. Um, I have 212 publications between four designers and me and another editor. And I have a couple of freelance editors that we farm some stuff out to, um, mostly copy editing responsibilities. Um, so it's very small, very interactive, very collaborative. Um, the uh, I I basically I hate this word, but I, I guess it's about the best way to say it is ideation. You know, um, I have to come up with like the stuff that goes in things. Now. Um, the way that happens is you eat some, you see something, you read about something, you meet someone. Also, people pitch stuff to you. Um, so it's sort of like stealing, coming up with, and uh, harvesting, you know. Yep. Um, beg borrowing and stealing ideas until you, um, and, and I, I'm a, I tend to plan the books out far in advance. We're, we're planned all the way through mid-August right now. Um, so, but you have to do that because if you don't, the workload will overwhelm you. You can't like, you can't start from scratch with each one. Come up with the ideas, assign them to people. Especially since you're working with mostly freelancers, and that means they have another job usually, so they have to fit it in their time. So, all my, I mean, I have all the stories. If if I were to if something were to happen to me, the stories would still be coming in, and my associate editor would be able to edit them, and the world wouldn't come crashing down. Um, but yeah, so I basically come up with the, the plan for what's going to be in the book. Um, and then, um, the look is, is, uh, our creative director, EJ Tao. And prior to him, it was, um, Jennifer Finner. Um, they're the people who, that aesthetic, that thing you see, the, the look of it, that's them. They, they, um, now I'm responsible for the end product. So I, I, I come over and. You know, and, and we'll give my opinion uh, on things. Uh, but by and large, um, most of my opinion when it comes to stuff that like EJ does is just like, oh, that looks awesome, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then walk out the door and go back to my stories, you know. Um, so uh, 
he's uh, EJ's just got a, he's a super creative guy and he's always got some sort of interesting way of thinking about things which is always an it's it's always a fun thing to be a part of the process you know you're always sort of like opening up a present um, because you know you'll take this idea for a story and then um, you'll assign it to a writer and then they'll turn it in and then you'll start editing it and when you're finished with it you send it off to the copy editor and you put it into the file then the creative director or art director who we have a, the other ones are art directors so the creative directors at the top and then you have like three art directors that that, that he sort of you know um, will go over and uh, you know you know give them some tips about how to fix x y or z you know um, but you'll get like you know all of a sudden you know it'll be like oh hey come look what we're doing with the story and it's like it's like you're opening up a present you're like oh wow I can't believe and uh, he'll come he comes up with stuff that you'll just come walking in and just think oh wow I had I would have not in a million years thought of that so. hmm. how do you think about the internet and kind of marketing and just like the shift I know you, you know you kind of you've been in the industry like before say Instagram or like before like uh, maybe yeah. even just like podcasting kind of you know coming in as a um, new medium how does that like how do you think about how you distribute or how you kind of tie in readers or or ideas like what what is the thought process on that i guess um you know i'm i probably run against the grain when it comes to stuff of this nature i'm a little curmudgeonly about it to be honest with you but um there are things that i think the internet does very well um Breaking news, um, TMZ, keeping you up on the Kardashians, you know, um, the latest angry Twitter, Twitter war, you know, I mean, if I have to see another story where it's, you know, the headline, somebody, you know, people furious over somebody said X, and then you open it, and it's like 12 people on Twitter are being quoted, and it's, that's not the real world, and that's not a real thing that that that's another that's another argument i got it that's we'll have a beer sometime and then we can just but but there there the internet does certain things well um and we could we could debate how well it does the new the news overall but i but i think it's pretty clear that it doesn't do magazines as well as paper um, people generally don't want to sit down and read 5,000 words on their phone. Or even really on a screen, unless they do it like New York Times when you have all that money. I'm, you, I'm sure you've seen some of those incredible, you know, you're reading the story and the snow starts falling and it's right, sort of, right. semi-animated and it, then a graphic will come up. And Well, that's an experience. That's a different, that's a different beast. But your yeah. general feature story, your general story that you're doing, um, it's not terribly fun to sit at your laptop and scroll, scroll, scroll through it. Um, reading a magazine is an experience. Um, you flip through it, you save it, you hold it over there, you're like, I, you, you dog ear it, and I'm gonna come back to it. Um, so I really think what you're gonna find down the road is people are gonna rediscover some of this aspect of it. We have a tendency in society to be like all one thing or all another. Prince dying, you know, we can't be like, oh, Prince changing. You know, uh, certain things print doesn't have to do anymore. 
you can do online. Other things print needs to do. Um, it's hard to get corporate America to to turn the boat around quick enough, you know, when it comes to things like that. So I think you'll, I, I think that online is good for branding. I think it's really good um, in terms of magazine. I'm speaking magazine. Sure. It's good for branding. Uh, you know, you share your stories. People are aware of, of your thing. I think um, there are like, you know, going to, going to distinctions uh, website, um, you get to see there's a we have a lot of shorties in there a lot of smaller things that was one of the things i brought to the magazine was i i felt like it was just too many 3000 word stories with 17 photos and it just you need more of a rhythm and more of a you know um more of like you know a, a variation to keep things fresh um so there's stuff that you can do but i think most of our readers seem to really enjoy having the product and if you've seen distinction it's not only just that it's a magazine it's also um the the type of paper we use and everything even makes it more of a more of a sort of it lives for a long time on a coffee yeah. table it so. feels elevated yeah i think that's right too about kind of things change i think it doesn't have to be one or the other you know and the closest example of that to me is retail i mean i think there's still Absolutely. a lot of people that w- want to go in and physically pick something up and touch it see what it's like um it's interesting that's that, that's uh, so i have a question for you because this is the world that you work in yeah please but um I, i'm always amazed because I, re- I wrote a piece um in growler um was it last month or the month before the last issue or the issue before that but i really talked about this sort of this sort of um you know craft beer sort of went against the grain right um, at a time when the world is basically looking around and going, oh God, we're not making as much money. Let's make all of our stuff less good. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, J. Crew right across the, the mall here is gone. Um, every true. time I went into that J. Crew, every single time, I'd walk in and they'd go, oh, we don't have that, but we can order it for you online. And I'd say, I'd say to them, because I'm that kind of person, I'm that guy, you realize you're making yourself outdated right. right every time you say that to me that just means why am i in here yep and if i'm not in here how are you getting paid <laughs> you know uh and they always looked at me like i was you know um a jerk for saying something but I, I, i'm always amazed they're not thinking as they're looking around like j crew didn't have to go out of business j didn't have to lose that space over there they don't have to become an entirely online thing, right? Right. No. It's, um, there's it's an avenue brand. for for people who make things. One hundred percent. I think there's a great brand, specifically J. Crew. I mean, there's so much nostalgia there, the equity in the brand. I mean, um, there's a lot of things happening. I mean, uh, Victoria's Secret's going private right now. I just noticed that, um, and the deal terms looking at it it seems like i mean it's extremely undervalued it's an asset it's just kind of repackaging maybe how it communicates to consumers um but i i'm very like i have a very similar viewpoint because i do a lot of events so i'll I'll go to an event set up a table and you know sometimes the customers will ask me well can i see it online and i'll say yes but at the end of the day, you may not see what I have on this table online. This is the experience here. So it is kind of a, it's a, it's a push and pull around 
uh, convenience for the customer. So if the customer wants to purchase then, you should have it there available for them. If they want to go and shop later or if they want to discover you, maybe, you know, maybe they discover you through some type of channel, they can start educating themselves so that by the time they see you in person, they're ready to purchase or ready to ask a specific question. So I definitely think that the world still play together whether it's online or offline yeah. for our business and, and kind of similar businesses. Um, and that kind of leads me into another question is, um, what advice do you have for someone maybe starting out uh, in journalism, whether they want to work their way up the ranks? Um, well, let me, can I just go back to the other one please. just for a second? Please. Because if someone hears this, I hope it's someone in the world of like CEO money dumb will hear this and take it to heart. So craft beer is very successful right now. What did craft beer do at the time when, when all of these retail and, and keep in mind craft beer is kind of like retail meets uh, manufacturing, right? So at the time when manufacturing's just plummeting, retail is plummeting even worse, it succeeded. And I would argue it succeeded because it did the exact opposite of what both of those two, those two industries have done. Right. Right. It at the time when you like J I mean, I used to buy J. Crew jeans and they were fantastic, right? And and affordable. Yeah, hundred, hundred twenty dollars, right? And then one year over the course I went in there and it you could I mean you could physically feel how much lighter they were than they used to be. Mm-hmm. The leather uh, little thing on the back was now, you know, not leather, it was so not the quality yeah. changed. So it was like clear they were like, mm, let's uh we're struggling right now, let's lower the quality. Um Craft beer said, no, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go local instead of uh, the sort of, um, this sort of concept of you have to do the same thing everywhere. We're going to do the exact opposite. We're going to go local. We're going to spend more money on our, on our ingredients. And we're going to invest in expertise and the customer experience. And it's done very well. I mean, there are not many craft beer breweries in this state that have gone out of business. That makes sense. Right? But there are a lot of other places that have gone out of business and they've all done it the same way and, and you know my industry is doing the exact same thing, right? My industry says, "Oh god, uh, we're struggling right now with um, with you know the internet eating into our profits and we're trying to get, you know, these guys are killing themselves to get uh, online subscribers and all that. But they still haven't figured out how to monetize it, see. I mean, I've seen small towns that have a, a population of um, like 25,000, 65% of whom are over the age of 60, advertising jobs for editors and say, you must understand this online thing. Because when you come here, it's gonna be, and it's like, do you know your market? <laughs> do you know your market? Because you could get everyone in your town to be your online, to, to, to subscribe to your newspaper online and it still wouldn't make you any money. Mm-hmm. Um, That's an interesting point. Um, they they don't they they have not figured out how to monetize it, and if they haven't figured out after twenty five years of it, I'm not sure it's ever going to get figured out. Um, but I'm not sure if you really want to know the truth that that's what they care about at the top. You're being led by all of these these corporations are being led by people who have no interest in what they create. So it's really just looking at dividends and you know yeah, spreadsheets and stuff. It's just math. And and I'm sure they actuary it to death where they're like, well, you know what, if we make X amount of profit till here and then we sell it, 
So that's that's where, so this is where you get. Nobody's really interested in creating quality again. And and my thing is, I mean, even like you you know Leadberry, right? Oh yeah. Right. Why are why didn't J Crew do what Leadberry does, which is anything we sell, you can come feel, see what the fabric's like, we'll fit you, and then we'll mail it to you. You know, that way they that, that way their entire inventory is here. You don't walk in and go, oh, uh, I guess I'll go online and see and order it. If I don't like it, I'll send it back in. Um, I just, they're new. They're, like you were saying, there's, you don't have to, there are different ways to engage. That's right. And um, they're not trying to do that. They're just lowering quality. And, and then it's another thing I think about when it comes to the sort of CEOs and the money side of it. It's like there's a certain level of incentives I think the way you hit on it, like where the you just kind of keep profit going in a specific mm-hmm. direction and then you sell or, I mean, you may move on to another position. So at the end of the day, it's kind of like, it's harder to take that. I mean, that's a bold step, the craft industry, craft beer industry to kind of, or, or even Leadberry, like that's, to me, it seems like that's a bold step to just, you know, cut out middlemen or whatever it is that they're doing to innovate in their particular industry, investing service, invest in, uh, you know, raise prices, you know. Um, so that in itself in the short term creates, you know, a, a rocky dynamic or a rocky time for those executives. And, um, you know, if you're a little, you know, if you're an emerging company and startup company or whatnot, or, you know, at least if you have like, like to some extent a creative or innovative leadership team then you can sort of deal with those bumps and bruises in the short term and then you can get to that you know that success where you know there's widespread adoption i mean the craft beer industry worked on me i mean that's all i look for when i'm you know selecting a a beverage um they created it they they created and see too much of business And this is every business, including the one I'm in, and is trying. They they are obsessed with filling an existing need. Um, the the craft beer created the need. Yeah. There yeah, was nobody was running around going, "I want an IPA." Before the IPAs got here, you know, I was point. drinking Bud Light. I didn't know any better. I think I was drinking the Newcastle, and I was like, "Oh, this is the greatest beer," <laughs> you know. I didn't sit around and go, "You know what we need." A better beer. That's what we need. You know, but, yeah. but then they, they created a better beer. And we're like, God, I need a better beer. And now I'm like, oh, I've had enough of this, you know, uh, Bell's Too Hearted. Let's get something else, you know. Well, that's a quote. <laughs> need a better beer. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no. Um, what, um, you know, I know you've, you've, got, you've, you've got a lot of experience. Um, you know, you know, you've worked in several capacities, like... How does one get started today if you're, you know, what I'm thinking is if you want to work in a traditional setting and you want to mm-hmm. kind of do this, or maybe even if you, if you don't and, and you're, like you say, maybe you're freelance and you want to, you want to like just get better at writing, you want to uh, have a way of communicating, like what would you say to someone, like how would you begin to uh, kind of get started or what, what, what are some steps? Um. Well, you know, I think uh, the the first thing is, you know, get your education. Um, you know, I, I'm assuming people come out of college. You don't have to be in journalism to be a journalist. Um, 
you just have to know how to write. And um, journalism is a, a, a style of writing, I suppose, a craft to some degree. So you sort of have to learn. I mean, I think I took three journalism classes in school. But once you sort of get the idea, then the rest, it's almost like law. You, you get a degree in law, but you don't get to practice law until you go to the uh, to the, uh, the to actually get a job at a law firm and uh, you, you, you know um, and then they teach you all the stuff you didn't know you know you you learn the books and stuff and then you learn the pragmatic side of it and it's kind of the same way um, but I mean I you know the only way you're gonna you can do writing is to do writing I mean it's one of those things where you just have to do it a lot um, so I mean I would suggest that they find something like a you know um, the thing is, you can't. Every, every, there are a lot of people think they are writers, and it's writing is a tough job, and it's a tough discipline. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's not an easy thing to write. Um, everybody thinks. I think everybody thinks they can. Everybody secretly at home thinks, oh, "I got a book inside of me," <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, I'm here to tell you, you don't. You know what I mean? It's not easy. Um, I knew a lot of writers who don't have books inside of them, and they're good writers. There's different skill sets and like being able to create nonfiction out of nothing. That's a different. I, that's a different brain. I can't do that. I can't sit down and be like, "Oh, I'm going to write a novel." <laughs> you know, I've tried, and uh, my brain doesn't work like that. I can do nonfiction all day long. Um, but but novel writing I can't do. So I think the first thing is to figure out what it is that, that you can do and what, what it is that you want to do. Um, there are a whole bunch of opportunities for freelance writing out there. Content is one thing that this world is in desperate need of. Hmm. Um, on, that's the one thing where online still needs content. Um, I mean, you know, you, online, just being online is not the thing. You have to have something that somebody wants to see online. So I would say, you know, if you want to be a journalist or you want to, um, you know, or a writer, want to write for magazines, want to write for publications, uh, you know, what you do is you um, find the ones that are in your wheelhouse. And then you, the thing I, I keep, don't email the editor and be like, hey, I want to write a story for you and think that that's going to get the job done. What you have to do is you go, you find one that's in your wheelhouse, like, you know, say you're just starting out, don't go to like Distinction and think that I'm going to be, take a chance on you because those are, it's an expensive magazine and they're expensive stories. So um, I expect a certain level of expertise. But like, if you're into craft beer, right, and, you th and you're like, you want to write, you know, Growler's a good place to, to like pitch a story. And what you do is you pitch a story um, to the editor. That's how you get in. You go, I think this story X, Y, and Z, and, and I'd like to write that for you. Um, and then if the editor bites on it and you do a good job, then the editor, you're in that editor's mind. The editor will keep, you know, I have a folder full of uh, names of people that I use and, you know, do